Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. This is Recode Media. I am not Peter Kafka. I'm Jason Del Rey, a senior correspondent at Recode, where I've been covering Amazon for longer than I care to admit. And this is a special bonus episode. Because of my background, Peter asked me to sit down with perhaps the only other person I know who has spent more time trying to understand Jeff Bezos and Amazon. That's the journalist and author Brad Stone. Brad and I discussed his new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. And we looked ahead to try to figure out where Amazon is going next in video, advertising, and a whole bunch of other areas. I think you're in for a treat. Here's Brad Stone. Hey everyone, I'm here with Brad Stone. I think many of our listeners will know who Brad is, but, you know, longtime Bloomberg journalist and editor, also author of now two books about Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Brad, great to have you. Thank you, Jason. Did I get that description right? You want to you want to do your own? That's pretty good. I'm happy with that. I'll also say longtime Recode reader and follower of your work and admirer of your work. I feel like the fraternity of of people who know how insanely difficult it is to crack this company and tell their story is small. And so it's really a delight to talk to you um, and, and to someone who's read the book and understands the company. I appreciate that. And yes, this can be a pseudo therapy session as well. Um, at the end, I'm going to ask for all your book writing advice as I am currently trying to write a book about Amazon and Walmart and that rivalry. But uh, we'll we'll start with you. So you you have a book. You know, this episode will be airing, I believe, on the day your book comes out. It's called Amazon Unbound. Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Uh, this is sort of the sequel to the Everything Store, which you originally wrote. What were you setting out to do with this book? What I set out to do was to update my history. You know, I had I, I was proud of the Everything Store. Um, it, the Everything Store continued to kind of resonate. I, I learned that you know it was it was a, a valued book for people who were at Amazon or in e-commerce or thinking about joining Amazon. But it just, as the, the years went by, came to be sort of woefully out of date. I mean, there was Alexa, and there was the expansion into India, and there was Hollywood, and the globalization of the marketplace, and the transportation network that they were building. And and that was just the beginning when I set out in 2017 to go, okay, I'm going to write another installment of the of the construction of this empire. And then there was the whole evolution of a man named Jeff Bezos. And, right. And, and HQ2 happened while I was writing the book. And, and then the, the whole saga with the National Enquirer and, and the Saudis happened while I was writing it. 
and and the real, I think, uh, acceleration of regulatory efforts and antitrust scrutiny. And then as I, and so nothing, it's like trying to catch a moving train. And then I was right. trying to finish the darn thing and sit down to write. And the pandemic happens. And Amazon goes from being a, a $900 billion company to a $1.6 trillion dollar company. And so it's, it's, you know, what I set out to do was, was, um, you know, I, I was joking on Twitter that the everything store was Star Wars, and this is the Empire Strikes Back. Right. And yep. the only the only challenge with that is it suggests there needs to be a third installment. And I don't think I have the energy for that. But I was I was gonna I was gonna ask about that. But we could we could put that off for a bit. Um, And, and were, were there one or two questions you were trying to answer? I know, you know, to, to try to cover the last, I guess, the last decade of Amazon and Jeff Bezos's evolution, you know, to do it in, I mean, you did it in a very detailed way, but you could write several books on that. I, I'm wondering if you, how you tried to focus uh, the book that's coming out now. I think the biggest challenge when you, when you, when you stand from a distance, it all seems uh, like a morass of overlapping events. Um, and the biggest challenge and the biggest the biggest question I had was, how does it all fit together? You know, how does one company, you know, with a couple hundred thousand employees, now over a million, you know, do so many different things? And 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 is it linear? And, it, and if not, how would you organize it into a narrative? And then the specific questions I had were, how does a company, you know, really a, an online retailer and, and a cloud services company come out of nowhere to leapfrog Google and, and Microsoft and Apple in the race to build a, a kind of artificial intelligence or voice activated computer. So how does Alexa happen? You know, why why is Amazon making TV shows and movies? Yep. You know, that, that was a question. And and then and then, you know, and frankly, like, you know, why does Amazon go into competition with the FedExes and the UPSs of the world to start driving our neighborhoods and flying the skies and, and the highways? Um, so, yeah, these were specific questions. And I, it was like a puzzle. How to how to fit it all together? So I want to get through, get to a lot of that, you know, especially for Recode Media listeners, definitely want to talk about Hollywood and the studio's endeavors. Definitely want to talk about advertising. I want to start, though, with um, Bezos and, um, you know, the reaction to your first book, The Everything Store. So bestseller came out in, I believe, 2013, right? I, I had just started covering the company then. Um, but you had, you know, Jeff Bezos's then-wife, you know, Mackenzie, uh, right. Um, a one-star review. You had some other longtime executives, you know, criticize the book. How do you go back to the company? And it seems like you got some cooperation. How, how do you go back to the company years later and say, you know, I'm going to do this again. Will you participate in some way? <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I will say that the, that the reaction to the everything store, um, was, was very much driven, my understanding was, was very much driven by Jeff. And it was, you know, I, I can't, obviously, I can't, can't speak for him. But, you know, there were things in that book that he specifically didn't like, and he, and he specifically didn't like how I had kind of gone about, you know, re reporting them, like the situation with his biological father. And, you know, and so I think like that was the short term reaction. The that, and, and for those, maybe there are some who didn't read the book. You, you went out and, and found his biological father right. who who did not know who Jeff Bezos had become. 
essentially. Right. And then and then he had wanted to get back in touch with the, with his family with with uh, Jeff and his mother. And, um, you know, and suddenly there was a situation there and, and I, I had told his mother that I had gone and done this and I don't think my efforts were very well appreciated and, uh, you know, and probably in retrospect, I could have handled it better, but it was a very unusual situation and the book comes out and Jeff doesn't like it. And I think he really organizes some of these negative reviews, but then, you know, it, I, I think like people embraced the book, right? It was very well read. Yeah. It was, it was you know, wasn't, it wasn't, I'm sure there were mistakes. And I, I quite frankly didn't realize, you know, where Amazon was heading and, and how epic and historic it would become. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, o- over the course of years, I'm sure, right, they realized that employees had em- embraced it and um, people in e-commerce had embraced it. And, you know, and I, I think the relationship got better over time. I ran into Jeff once or twice and he was he was always perfectly cordial. And then, yeah, and then I came back to them in 2017. I said, you know, so much has happened. I want to tell the story of how, you know, the everything store became the everything company. And they, they were, you know, they were receptive. Like to their credit, I do believe Amazon is being a little more, Jason, maybe, I don't know if you'll disagree with this, but <laughs> well, a little more accommodating. I mean, obviously they're careful, they're super disciplined, they're super frustrating at times, but um you know, I think when they when they recognize that your intentions are good and that you want to do the work, um, they'll at least cooperate a little. Now, Jeff wouldn't talk to me for for this book, so I didn't get the Wal- Walter Isaacson style, uh, you know, bedside uh, uh, memoir. Um, that one day someone will, and I'm sure that book will be great. But they allowed me to talk to Andy Jassy and Dave Clark and Jeff Wilkie and almost probably more than a dozen of of senior executives who, you know, who are important at the company and have made an impact. Just on the Jeff's topic for a second, did you think you might get him for this book? You know, he didn't he didn't speak to you on the record for the first book either. Um, was there a shot in your mind for this one? You know, so um, the logical answer is, is no, because when you look back at the last couple of years, what has he really done, right? He He's done nothing recently. He's, you know, the, the couple of interviews that he has had have usually been with friendly questioners. I remember his he had his brother interview him on stage at one event. Um, he's been very careful. I'm not... I'm not so sure he is in the mood or even feels like he needs to answer tough questions from an independent journalist. Right. But the real answer to your question is, of course, I thought I had a shot. And up until the last minute, I was writing memos and personal emails and entreaties and, um, and, and trying my best because I thought it would make a better book. And, you know, and we got to try. And I thought, you know, if I had done the, because I had done the diligent work and talked to so many people and was going through a process, a fact-checking process, a pretty thorough one that I thought had a lot of integrity to it. And so to answer your question, yeah, I thought to the last moment that he might talk to me, um, but he didn't. A big part of the book, though, is, you know, trying to track his evolution, right? Um, Sort of from, you know, geeky entrepreneur to... um, obviously richest man in the world, but, and jet setter with, you know, a divorce and then a new girlfriend or whatever order that actually happened in. What did you learn about that evolution that either maybe you didn't recognize going in or, you know, that readers will find new about Bezos and who's he, who he has become over, over the last few years? 
for for the first book, I I remember talking to Eric Schmidt. Um, I wanted a, a voice outside of Amazon who could speak with a lot of authority. And for this book, I went to Jamie Diamond, who who's been a you know a longtime friend of Bezos's, and and the two companies collaborated a little bit on the healthcare effort that ultimately went nowhere. And and Jamie put put this in a good way. I think he, he said that. Over the years, Jeff's eyes have opened up to a lo- the larger world, you know, that he was at, at one point sort of abs- completely absorbed in the mechanics of building Amazon, of building a, a lasting company, um, of, you know, catering to the Amazon customer. But as his stature grew, um, I mean, Jamie didn't say this, but as his wealth grew, as the responsibility that comes with that wealth grew, his eyes opened up to a larger world. And that, you know, I, and I put that quote in the introduction, and I think it it sort of speaks to this transformation. I mean, Jason, the guy we covered in 2013 who awkwardly introduced the Fire Phone and, and gave everyone this kid's book, um, it's not the guy that's kind of marching on the world stage right now. Um, visibly, he's he looks different, um, but you know where he spends his time is different. Um, obviously, his personal situation has evolved. Um, and so I don't know, you know, in terms of like, what did I learn? But I, I wanted to chart that path. I wanted to show that path and illustrate Jamie Dimon's quote, that this is someone who has gone from, you know, a, a sole focus, a singular focus to being, you know, a, a leader on the world stage. And, you know, funnily enough, as I'm finishing the book, he resigns as CEO of Amazon. And in a way that kind of puts the exclamation mark on the story. Um, he's, he's, he now belongs to this vast array of companies and, and concerns and philanthropic efforts in his empire. It's not just an Amazon empire anymore. It's uh, pretty varied. I, I've written about this. Um, you have too. Um, how much changes at Amazon, in your opinion, with him taking on this new role as, I think it's executive chair or something like that, and, and Andy Jassy stepping in? Obviously, some people point to the fact that and I think you get at this in your book, uh, you know, outside of the pandemic, sort of Jeff had been stepping away from some of the day-to-day for many years now. Um, do you see real impact in the next few years from from his departure from the CEO role? I think almost certainly so. I mean, the big, the big challenge, the big question is how much runway will he give Andy? And this is the challenge for anyone who leaves, you know, gets promoted out of one job into another. Like, will they stop doing their old job? <laughs> and you wonder in the, in the ST meetings if when Jeff is present, who talks last? Who's the guy, you know, is it Andy or Jeff? Who leaves mm-hmm. the room first while everyone is sitting there in, in, uh, in respectful silence? Is it Andy or Jeff? My suspicion is that Jeff, you know, tutors Andy and mentors him in this expanded role, but ultimately does give him the runway because Jeff wants to go work on Blue Origin and fix Blue Origin. He he wants to go, you know, leave an impact on on uh, on climate change, you know. And as I report in the book, he's building a wonderful super yacht, uh, so he wants to go sail the seas. And I suspect that you know Andy's going to get some independence now. Bezos says he's going to stick around and you know work on invention, and um, and I think that's important because you know the thing that has really kept Amazon growing and fresh and maybe helped its reputation a little bit is that every couple of years it does seem to surprise people with with something new that changes their lives, um, and so um, you know I expect that he will stick around for a while. Yeah, on the invention topic, that's been interesting. Besides, you know. Like you, I talked to former Amazon executives. I've talked to some who who look back and say, for a company like Amazon, 
there actually hasn't been sort of a breakthrough massive invention since Alexa. Obviously there you know the delivery network which we'll we'll get into, you know, last mile delivery has been you can call if if you want to call that invention that's been huge. But in terms of like technological consumer invention, a lot of people will still point to Alexa. Um what do you think about that? And you think there's real pressure on Jassy from a consumer point of view mm-hmm. to to create another breakthrough? I, I would say that overlooks the potential, maybe as yet unrealized, of the of the ghost store and the retail technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, those stores where you know you 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 pick something off a shelf and walk out and and don't uh, have to stop at the cashier. And then the the another version of the technology are in grocery carts, you know, the, the dash carts where you, you kind of scan, it automatically scans as you put them in. And Amazon is opening physical stores, grocery stores now across the country using one of those two technologies uh, that they introduced in 2017. So it's as yet probably unrealized potential, certainly wasn't the immediate hit that Alexa was, but it does have a lot of potential. So that aside, if the question is, is, is Amazon now, kind of less inventive um, than probably for the last couple of years to the extent that we've gotten these sort of feeble iterations of Alexa in like glasses and and the wristwatch that haven't really done well. There's this robot, um, that this home robot, um, I'm, the name's escaping me, maybe you can remember it, um, that hasn't launched yet, that the, uh, the team is supposed to be quite large right now, kind of a, a, a roving Alexa robot. Um, and then the satellite network, the Kuiper initiative, where, right. you know, which is competing with uh, Starlink from SpaceX, that seems somewhat delayed. Um, yeah. I mean, when you get to a company of Amazon size, the pressure is, you know, to move the needle, um, you have to kind of keep reinventing yourself and, and introducing new things. And that will be the fundamental challenge of the Jassy era. And perhaps there'd be more pressure on on new breakthrough inventions, if not for the pandemic and what's that what that's meant to the core business, right? right? Just growth numbers in the core business going from maybe, you know, or overall business 20, 20 percentage points, sorry, 20% year over year to I think we're in the 40s, right? So, you know, for a transition seems to be you know, pretty cushion spot from the retail point of view. That's true. It, yeah, unlike Apple, which really does need to keep reinventing itself every year and get people back into stores, Amazon has so much runway in those two core businesses, uh, which are quite large markets, uh, uh, cloud computing and retail. So perhaps, um, yeah, the, the, the need for a new thing every couple of years isn't as immediate. Well, one thing about Alexa um, that caught my attention, you know, I think you mentioned that over the last few years, you know, we've seen sort of new iterations, but um, it has not become a device that people order, you know, all their products to, uh, you know, through. Um, but you had a fascinating story about how they tested Alexa in the early days. I don't know if that was original to your reporting or whether I missed that elsewhere, but can you just describe that a little bit? I'm, I'm talking about the, I think it was apartment rentals to test yeah, the out Alexa. Amped, the AMPT program. And why, yes, Jason, that is a, a new uh, a new anecdote in, in the book. <laughs> thank, thank you for recognizing. Um, sure. So, it, well, I'll try to do it succinctly. But there's a kind of, um, let's call it the, the AI paradox that comes with introducing any new uh, AI product, which is the thing that would, you know, d- if, if it uses kind of deep learning methods, the thing that makes it good is the data, the amount that it's used, because it learns from, you know, from when it's used. But you don't get that data until you launch it. 
But if you launch it before you get the data, no one's going to use it. Okay, right. that's the paradox. So, um, and and various companies have done different things, like license data sets from from other companies, like Nuance. Uh, Amazon didn't want to do that. And the product wasn't getting good enough, fast enough, when it was in beta just in employees' homes. So they came up with this um, program called AMPT. Can't remember what it stands for. But they basically move uh, Alexa into all of these apartments around the country in disguise. They cover them with acoustic uh, fabrics. And then they litter the apartments with decoy devices like Xboxes and TVs and tablets. <laughs> and then they hire this firm, Appen Research, to basically hire temp workers and stream them through these apartments and homes and have them read scripts and have them at, say utterances out loud and converse. And all the microphones on all the hidden Alexas are picking up all the speech. Um, they're recording all this data about accents and environments and the time of day and the way people phrase things. And then all of those transcripts are sent to, to another set of contractors who are annotating them and trying to improve the, the AI's understanding of various questions. And that is how Amazon leapfrogs Apple and Google in a race to kind of develop a, a capable voice recognition, natural language understanding engine. And the funny little anecdote is that um, they're doing this in secret and repeatedly the cops are called all on these installations because neighbors are like, what is who are, this? <laughs> right. Who are, who are all these strange people just going in and out? Is right. it, is it a drug house? Is it a, I don't know what, a, a variety of things it could, could have been. Right. Right. Um, and, and, and this is how in a span of like six months, uh, they collect enough data that they solve the AI paradox and Alexa gets smart enough to at least go into people's homes in late 2014 and get them to use it. So, um, yeah, that, that was one of my favorite anecdotes. I, you know, as an inside baseball Amazon reporter, I, I do try to pick up as I'm going through the book, the, the different nuggets that are, that are new and have not been, not been covered before. And, um, not surprisingly, uh, th there were a ton of them, but that was one of my favorites. Peter and the Recode Media audience talk a lot about the streaming wars and video streaming business. Obviously, Amazon and Amazon Studios has been in the space for a while now. Coming out of your reporting about, you know, the Roy Price uh, era at Amazon, uh, the former head of Amazon Studios, um, and all the spending we're still seeing Amazon do in that space. Like, what is what is the end goal here? Is this a Bezos pride project? Does it really matter to the future of Amazon Prime as much as the company seems to say it does? What, what, what's your takeaway from that reporting? Let me let me answer that question by starting with a kind of hypothetical. Uh, let's assume um, that Prime was still just two day shipping. And right now there is a fulfillment center, you know, probably 30 miles from where I'm sitting. And and there's probably a fulfillment center where are you in Staten Island? Whoa. Whoa that is sorry. my that that we is my that, that No, no, that is my I, I was raised in Staten Island. Okay. I'm I'm in I'm in Bergen sure. County, Bergen County, Bergen New, County Jersey. New Jersey. Okay. Yep. Um well there's probably one within 30 miles of where you are. Oh, I mean five miles. Yeah. Five very miles. close. Yeah. And and the fact is that um our deliveries would be coming anyway, within two days or probably even one day. And so what in this hypothetical scenario would Prime membership even get you? And so when you think about that and you look, go back to 2010 or 2011, when Jeff Bezos first put, you know, sees DVD sales declining, 
understands that Netflix um, and video on demand are, are fundamentally disrupting um, the, the video industry uh, and puts um, Prime Video, basically video on demand, makes it a, a free membership perk of, of Prime. It was enormously farsighted. You know, he realized that Prime shouldn't just be a shipping program. It should be a kind of premium membership to all of Amazon's offerings. And, and then that leads them into some interesting places. At first, Amazon's just licensing content, and, and Netflix largely is too. And that's a, you know, that's a enormously expensive undertaking that's just enriching the studios. And this is what HBO and Showtime discovered a decade ago. Right. So instead of just bidding to, for the best content, you make your own. And so then they establish an outpost in, in Hollywood called Amazon Studios. And then it's this like enormously entertaining, zigzagging, somewhat successful, somewhat unsuccessful effort to create shows that matter. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they went there by necessity. Um, they were very smart in doing it. And now the fact that we all are prime members and we're not quite sure, you know, what we're paying for, but we know it's invaluable and we don't really think about canceling it shows that they've done a really good job of just branding it um, and positioning it as a, as a kind of loyalty service to the best that Amazon has to offer. And something I, I guess I'm still, you know, looking for, and I, I think you get at this in the book, you know, and Bezos too, is you know, he's looking for the big Grand Slam hits, right? He wants, I was going to use an old reference, he wants the House of Cards, but he, you know, he wants more of the blockbusters. Game of and, Thrones. And Game of Thrones. Um, wh what's your gut take, you know, having done all this reporting? Like, are, are we going to see those breakout blockbusters really land from Amazon? I mean, they're spending like, like they expect it to happen, right? But, um, the studio business is not like the retail retail business, right? There's less of a less of a guarantee in many ways. So I, I guess what's sort of your prediction on, you know, success if they're going to find that success that he's been looking for when it comes to the blockbusters? I mean, I think it's it's true that they have had you know they have had hits. Um, Sure, we can reel off a, a couple. The, the Boys is one that I like quite a bit. Um, but there's this billion-dollar bet coming down the pipeline in the form of their their Lord of the Rings uh, show, mm -hmm. and um, you know and the huge outlay for what's kind of feels like to me the B material in the in the J.R.R. Tolkien uh, um, you know library. And I don't know after sitting through nine hours of those three movies originally or four now, um, I you know I can't imagine. Um, that there's a lot of appetite left, but but you know it's probably not aimed at my demographic. But let me let me so let me just say this though: what is interesting is to the extent to which that maybe that doesn't matter anymore because Amazon, in a very Amazon-like way, it's not putting all of its eggs in one basket and depending on original content. Amazon now has you know the whole Fire TV platform, and the right. fact that a lot of people get their Netflix and their Disney Plus on an Amazon device, it is nestled right in there on your Comcast set-top box or your or your satellite set-top box. Um, a lot of these other cloud uh, streaming providers like Disney Plus use AWS. Right. Yep. And Netflix uses AWS. And so it is competing in, on all areas of the stack. It's kind of circumnavigated the entire industry. And if one or two shows don't hit and they've had their share of flops and their share of controversy, does it really matter? I mean, Amazon is, is everywhere. And, and however the, you know, the, the entertainment industry complex evolves, you can bet that Amazon will be active in, in many parts of it. 
Yeah, you know, I one thing I've always been interested about uh, related to their forays here is will will Amazon figure out a different way, right? A different way to, you know, find success here, you know, a different way to come up with a higher batting average or a hit rate on, you know, stuff they program themselves. Um, and we saw some of those efforts in the early years that seemed to have failed. But what, you know, what struck me was, you know, I think there was an anecdote in the book where Bezos is talking to Roy Price, the former head of studios, and he's saying something to the effect, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but something to the effect of, you know, so we're spending a hundred million dollars on whatever, you know, this project. And there's, we have, we don't know if it's going to work. Like, am, am I remembering? First yeah, of all, there, am must I remembering way, there must be a way to test these concepts. And it was such an interesting look into how Jeff thinks like this idea that you have to, in Hollywood, you go with your intuition or it's based on relationships was really strange to him. He wanted to systemize uh, the creation of TV shows and movies and figure out a scientific way uh, to to place his bets. In fact, originally, um, the Amazon employees in L.A. had cards that said the scientific studio. Um, that was and hmm. and uh, and part of it was kind of tax avoidance. They didn't want to be Amazon LLC in, uh, in California at the time. Yeah. But this idea that you could create processes, a system of invention, rather than relying on these strange human things like uh, like um, intuition and relationships and curiosity. Um, and of course, that didn't really work because Hollywood is about relationships and it is about talent and intuition. And a lot of, you know, the batting average is low and a lot of things don't work. Um, so he had to get comfortable with that. Um, but it was the whole, and at one point in the book, you remember Jason, he, he's really frustrated with Roy Price and yes. he reels off what the, the, the 14 elements of any big story, 13. That's elements. A, that's right. That's and, right. And, and it's like a protagonist, an antagonist, high stakes, civilization, uh, risk, and everything he says is correct and, and kind of impressive that he had the formula in his mind. But again, it's him trying to be precise and scientific. And the folks in Hollywood um, were kind of embarrassed by this list. Jeff wanted like check marks on every new property, make sure they have all 13 things. And, and they were embarrassed by how formulaic he wanted to make it. Do you think that you know, years-long attempt to to sort of Amazonify or whatever you want to call it, you know, the process of creating hits. Do you, Is your sense that they've sort of given up on that idea? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think the 13 guidelines were short-lived. They got discarded. I think they understood um, that Hollywood doesn't work like that. But the main thing that happened, and this happens across Amazon, is that when something is new, um, at least so far, you know, Jeff um, nourishes it, spends a lot of time on it, um, mm -hmm. micromanages it a little bit, maybe suffocates it a little bit, depending on on what product you're talking about. And he was doing that with Amazon, with uh, Amazon Studios, and they were going up to Seattle all the time and meeting with him specifically. And I do, I don't believe that happens anymore. I think that you know he's got a new S team member in charge of that effort, and then Jen Salky and and Hollywood. And I my sense is that they have more independence um, than during the, the Roy Price days when Jeff really was, you know, feeling like he it was something he wanted to spend his own time on. We'll be right back with Brad Stone. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. 
open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Businesses of all sizes count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And because there's no telling what the day will bring, you need a built-for-business PC solution that gives you security, performance, manageability, and stability no matter what stage you're in. Intel vPro is here to help. Intel vPro provides business class performance and reliability on powerful PCs that boost user productivity and satisfaction. And it offers multi-layer hardware-based security for below the OS protection, better application and data security, and advanced threat detection to help prevent issues before they happen. Whether the team is in office or working from home, security is the name of the game. The Intel vPro lets you remotely update, restore, and secure your business's PCs, even if they're outside the firewall. Plus, the integrated and validated platform helps ensure smooth PC fleet management and means you can maintain and scale PCs with confidence, helping you save the day, every day. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. And we're back with Brad Stone. Let's talk about the advertising business just for a couple minutes. I think I think you had a whole chapter on it, or or at least a significant significant section about the growth of that business. Obviously, now has become sort of a number three player in the U.S. Um, and one of the big questions I've had over the years is they've been so aggressive, saturating seems seemingly saturating product pages with advertising. Will there be some sort of consumer backlash, not, you know, not, not, you know, you know, not spoken out into the world, but, you know, manifest itself in some decline in that business. Um, and you have an anecdote in there about them testing, you know, I think it was product ads and seeing what the impact was on consumers, because this of course is the customer obsessed company. What did you find when it came to those internal studies about how customers reacted to the growth of the ads business. And, and, and then I have some follow-ups on that. Sure. Yeah. In fact, I, I felt like this might be a kind of key turning point in, in the growth of Amazon um, and, and the evolution of Jeff and the in- integrity of the company has as being kind of, you know, self-proclaimedly customer centric. So to put the, 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 advertising story in a nutshell, this was a kind of holy grail that Amazon pursued for, you know, 15 years. And they started with banner ads and they migrated the ads on product pages. And then um, they put ads in search listings that would take you to another retailer's website. So they tried a lot before they came up with the thing that really worked, which was, you know, they reinvented Google sponsored links. So you let your own brands and third-party sellers advertise within search results. And this was, you know, immediately a hit. They started at the bottom of the of the search page. Then they went to the side of the search page. And then Amazon started testing them in the anecdote that you mentioned for the top. And what they found, according to the, the interviews and research that I did, was that there was actually a drop-off in, you know, in the number of customers who found what they were looking for. Mm. And, and that's not a surprise. When you change from an algorithmically ordered 
taxonomy of useful products and move into like the highest bidder wins, you know, you're going to get um, some disappointed customers. But they also found that, it, of course, brands and third-party sellers loved it. They wanted to be at the top of search results and they would pay for it. Mm. And Jeff, who was basically running this process at the time, looked at it and said, this is a trade-off that is worth it. That even if we're hurting the customer just a little bit, it would have to be so large as to as to be improbable to exceed the amazing uh, income we're going to get, and which will give us an ability to go invest in great new things like new devices, new Alexas, and and Hollywood TV and 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 movies. And he made a trade off, and it was a deliberate trade off. Um, they went after I call that chapter the gold mine in the backyard. Right? They right. discovered it. But you look at the search results today, and they're so chock full of sponsored results and brand names and, um, I mean, uh, private label brands, but mostly ads that you wonder, you know, are you seeing the best stuff? And I think that, you know, I, I, the num- I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I feel like in the other category in the recent uh, earnings report, it was something like $5 billion. You know, they've discovered another AWS basically in terms of this income engine, but it, you know, I think it has, and it has hurt the customer experience. And I know a lot of sellers and brands feel like it is now much more expensive to use Amazon as a platform um, because of this extra charge. And it opens up the potential for competitors to come and disrupt Amazon. Yeah. And, and obviously I've talked to, you know, brands and sellers about this over the years, you know, on my sort of documentary podcast series, Land of the Giants, you know, have a whole episode that talks about sort of this adver- advertising as sort of a tax on Amazon now, right? Or or an added fee that you must do essentially, even if Amazon doesn't explicitly say that. I've been waiting for a sign that it's really going to matter. Like it's really going <laughs> to, you know, disrupt their sales or there's going to be a backlash that the company really has to overcome or make a big change as a result of. I just, I'm struggling to see it. I mean, after all the reporting you've done on it, what what do you think about that? Do you think there is a backlash coming in from from some party that's so great that Amazon has to listen, or do you think they're going to just keep riding this out in the way they are? I think Amazon's sort of strategic direction ha- has created room for other companies like like Shopify that that um, represents brands and and allows them to sell directly to customers. Um, but to your point, you know it hasn't it hasn't slowed. Amazon down all that much. And, you know, the number of sellers, you know, the third party sales really drives kind of the Amazon's Amazon's consumer business now. And there's a lot of, you know, disgruntlement among U.S. sellers. And then you have, you know, sellers overseas that go fill the, you know, fill the fill their absence. Um, So I I think I'm with you in that I kind of so far, there's not much evidence you know, that that Amazon is being slowed down. But the other thing is we have to admit that they are also responsive when they make mistakes. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, the counterfeit problem was a big one. I think that the faulty product problem was a, a big one. You know, the exploding hoverboards uh, and that uh, genre of uh, disaster. Um, and they realized that, um, you know, they weren't doing a good enough job policing the marketplace. And then in a very Amazon-like way, they don't throw people at it. They don't throw necessarily time at it, but they try to build these systems um, that go and, and you know, monitor the marketplace and, and allow brands to go self-regulate. And, um, and, and there's been mixed success there. But I do think that 
their understanding of the challenges that they have in the marketplace. And the question is, have, have, have they created a monster that is now so big that it can't be tamed? And, you know, we'll see. Um kind of obsessed with the marketplace topic. So let's let's talk about that for a bit. I'm of the belief that they are throwing a lot of money at it, a lot of technology, but they have created a monster in the third-party marketplace um, in terms of, you know, they courted so much growth over, you know, quality, over controls for so many years that I don't see how there's any turning back. And I I do think it's kind of a ticking time bomb. I was very, I was pretty envious of the approach you took to talk to sellers um, about the marketplace and the growth and the downsides and its effect. You, um, you essentially went and found sellers that Amazon had named or listed in press releases, right? Um, and in Jeff's, that, and in Jeff's investor letters, and in Jeff's investor letters, who um, at the time had positive things to say. And so you went back and checked in with these because the constant struggle, right, for a reporter reporting on this is, are you just hearing from disgruntled sellers who, you know, maybe aren't very good at what they do or have an ax to grind? Or is it really hard for all sellers? And so w- what did you find when you went back and talked to these sellers that at one point in history, Amazon has held up as case studies for success on the marketplace? Right. Well, you described the challenge exactly right. Like in lieu of some mystical high altitude survey of every seller on Amazon, how can you really take the temperature uh, in a a way that um, has integrity if if you're relying on just anecdotes? And so I went, I looked up every seller who had been mentioned in the investor letters, um, and I reached out to a couple who had lobbied on Amazon's behalf in in Washington, D.C. and in various states. And I think it, it... they were they were pretty negative, and I think it highlights something um, interesting about the marketplace, which is that it changes so quickly that yesterday's winners aren't necessarily tomorrow's, hmm. and you have to you have to really be nimble and innovative and self disrupting in a way that perhaps Amazon itself is uh, to be continuously be uh, a winner on the on the marketplace. And so these sellers who Bezos had heralded in 2015 and 2016, you know, in large part, you know, were were really discouraged and had moved their businesses off of Amazon, had fired their employees. Um, one guy, a former Marine uh, from Indiana who had lobbied on Amazon's behalf, had brought six-page memos into uh, to C- Seattle, to Amazon, to plead for more attention, um, you know, help in fighting off what he believed were some international knockoffs. Um, and they felt, you know, Amazon was pretty unresponsive to their needs. It wasn't uniformly negative. Um, you know, there were some folks... Uh, who uh, who had been mentioned in the shareholder letters that still had good businesses on Amazon, but mm-hmm. you know they they all felt like the company, you know, was was very hard to deal with, was remote, that the rules were always shifting, and that it had gotten much more expensive and less profitable to do business there. And look, I mean, it's like the Wild West, right? And you had a lot of um, gold seekers originally um, who built businesses very quickly and made a lot of money, and then as Amazon changes and maybe throws up some more hurdles. Um, as it get, it's bigger, one frustration is that the people you're dealing with today are never the people you're dealing with tomorrow. There's so much internal velocity and turnover at Amazon. Yep. Yep. It, it becomes kind of a faceless company, and Amazon always wants you to deal with the machine, the system. And so um, 
you know, some disillusionment. And I think I end that section um, with a quote uh, from James Thompson of, of Buy Box Experts who says, like, Jeff Bezos can't possibly know how messed up this is. And that, I thought, kind of kind of summarized uh, some of the sentiment. And, you know, even with all this discord and upheaval, I mean, obviously some of it's not good for Amazon, but obviously they love the competition part of it, right? And the, you know, sellers have to stay on their feet to to succeed whether fair you know whether through fair methods or <laughs> or unfair but even while um this is all happening you're seeing a ton of investment being poured into companies that are now like rolling up and acquiring all these sellers i haven't written a ton about it but i'm very curious where this ends up whether you know those efforts to create sort of these amazon seller holding companies are ultimately successful or not? Have Have you looked into that? That we've uh, written a couple facet? stories about it uh, on 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 Bloomberg, and um, I, I do think that it's it, it, that is worth noting. And the fact that it's happening does show that there are a lot of there's still a lot of opportunity on the Amazon marketplace, and that there are these players who see a lot of value, and and some sellers who are are cashing out and probably doing quite well in selling their brands to some of these uh, companies that are rolling up sellers. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of I don't know whether that'll be productive or profitable in the long term, but it really it really does underscore the point that this is kind of an unruly wild west that is just constantly changing all the time. And um, there's a lot of opportunity and there's also a lot of heartache, I think, uh, on the Amazon marketplace. A topic we haven't discussed yet, but it's connected, is um, regulation, potential of regulation, potential of antitrust action. After reading, you know, sort of your, your the part of the book that where you touch on all of this, seems like you're, I don't know if skeptical is the right word, but skeptical of real action coming against Amazon and that, that there are sort of tough cases to be made. Um, is, is that fair, sort of your point of view? Let me say this. There are a lot of um, Amazon critics out there who I think you and I can listen to and so people with a little bit of a sophisticated understanding of Amazon and say that, you know, their arguments are, are, are weak and betray a poor understanding of Amazon and the internet. Um, I'll give you an example. The idea that if you know, 50% or more of people are starting their search on Amazon, that that conveys any kind of a, a lock-in that Amazon has over the consumer is not how the internet works. I mean, you know, lock-in is only as strong as a closed browser window or a new tab uh, after you, you search on Amazon, you know, where you search on Google. And the point I'm trying to make is, this is like an insanely complicated company and an insanely complicated industry that betrays all obvious notions of what monopoly is and what market power is. Yep. You know, Amazon is in these massive industries. It's a small percentage point of a lot of them. It's got very strong competitors and the the uh, landscape is changing so rapidly and the possibilities for disruption are around every corner. I mean, if you look at Unrelated, but you know Facebook and the sudden uh, challenge posed by TikTok, which has really just happened over the last year, the same is is potentially true for Amazon. It's not a company that makes very very many or at all large acquisitions. 
It is a company that has made mistakes, I think, in terms of like how they launch their private brand business is something that we could discuss. But when it sees those mistakes, it tends to rectify its its behavior. So my point is, one of the reasons why I think action against Amazon is so difficult is because the issues are so complex. And when you listen, not only to the Amazon critics, but to some of the, the quality of the discourse in committee meetings um, or for, from politicians who are using Amazon as a rallying cry, it's not knowledgeable or very serious. And I think that if we ever get into a court of law with a judge or wh- whoever that are really looking at the issues, the case will be hard to bring. So all I'm, the reason why I think it's unlikely is because critics and regulators who want to address this need to raise their game and come at it with a really sophisticated understanding because Amazon's got the resources, it's got the influence, um, and, it, and it's got a very complicated business model and an argument that it has very strong competitors. Yeah, I think... Um... I guess the one the one thing I would push back on is I, I thought there were some House members who had done the work to get to know some of the businesses at Amazon as well as sort of could be expected. What's unclear to me is how much education is still needed inside a place like the FTC, right? They've been looking, you know, they haven't announced any formal investigation, but have been looking at different parts of Amazon for seem uh, maybe maybe two years right, now. Right. And yes, super complex. I think if you drill down into certain product categories, I think market share, I think you you would see some very large yeah. market share for, numbers. Books but, for, but Books for sure. Yep. And um, just a matter of, you know, <laughs> can you make a case around some of that? And um I'm obviously still keeping a very close eye totally. on it. Totally. We we have we have you know Europe you know we'll see what happens in Europe uh, w- with the EU investigation. So, and I do I do say in the book that this is coming right. It's clearly coming. I just think the bar is incredibly high. And when you look at you know Facebook and particularly Google, those are going to be easier cases to make. And the other advantage maybe that Amazon has is that bandwidth is is constrained right in in these antitrust uh, divisions uh, in in various governments. And 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 Amazon's in line. And you have Apple as well, and 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 Facebook and Google and Amazon and all of them present totally different and complicated issues. And that's why some of those hearings are so frustrating. When you combine all the CEOs and then you're talking about four different things, plus the the conservative complaint that Silicon Valley suppresses their voices, you kind of get a mess. But no, I do agree with you that there were some good questions. I'm just sometimes frustrated by the quality of the criticism that you hear from, you know, the independent critic who for 10 years has railed against Walmart and now Walmart isn't in their vocabulary and Amazon's the boogeyman, even though nothing has changed. You know, I, I guess the other thing I, I'm watching on this topic when I, when I talk to current and former Amazonians is whether at some point Amazon sort of puts out an olive branch, right? And that could take, you know, that could take many forms. Like it would, you know, be very, I don't know, be pretty easy for them to... <laughs> Just, you know, do something with that private label business, which is pretty small at the company, and just try to satisfy some critics in that way. I mean, on one hand, that doesn't sound very Amazonian. If you think you're doing nothing wrong, why would you give in? But there are some people inside the company who think, you know, maybe at some point the company would get out in front and do something on their own. Like, you know, we've seen them do on other topics, you know, the $15 minimum pay um, after a lot of criticism. But we'll see how that plays out. 
No, I think you're right. I mean, I, there is something that they, they can point to other retailers and say private label is a common strategy. Look at Costco, look at Walmart. Target, look, yeah, anyone. look at that Amazon search page and you three you see 365 value and you see what a, a four others that are also Amazon and you just kind of wonder, is this really fair? You know, this is the, the gateway to all this commerce and half of these things are Amazon private label and they've got all this data at their disposal that we know in the past they were they were peeking at, even if they're not anymore. And um, yeah, and, and I think that it's the reason why maybe I think you're right, they compromise on that is because it's something that is so easy for people to understand in a sea of complexity. And that's one reason why it's become the focus. Speaking of complexity, let's talk about Jeff's complexifier, as he called it, uh, back in his... Uh, I guess, infamous or famous blog post a couple of years ago, and that is the Washington Post. What did you learn about Jeff's influence over the years on the Washington Post since he's owned it? I learned a lot. I did, I didn't, I did not know much about how he had, how he was running the Washington Post and how much time and attention he was giving to it. So, you know, not only does he meet with uh, the management committee uh, every two weeks, but he he has issued a directive, or at least he did in the early years, bring me new things. And in a very Amazon-like way, they would go and give him a, a paper and he would read it. Um, he would actually read it beforehand. Um, and, and he was all about invention at the Washington Post and, and reinvention and, and growth. Um, the other thing I learned is he didn't. It wasn't a blank check. It wasn't philanthropy. The the executives at the Post brought him a, a budget in the first year after he had acquired the paper, and the budget um, had him losing quite a bit of money over over the next few years. And Jeff said, "I'm not interested in that. It's not going to happen." Hmm. And he hmm. basically made made them run, you know, at or near profitability even at the beginning. And he he grew it the right way with a lot of like experimentation and invention and strategic additions and headcount in the newsroom and subtractions and headcount on this on the sales staff uh you know that um was selling print ads. Um and they tried a lot of things and and like you have to it's you know I I, I criticize him a bit for uh the drift at Blue Origin, but you have to give him credit for the way in which the post you know, completely reinvented itself, um, vanquished of a sense of decline inside the newsroom is an exciting place for people to work. And and maybe part of it is they got lucky with Trump. Um, certainly yeah. they did, but um, they, you know, in a Bezos-like way, they kind of leaned into the future of, of digital subscriptions. And it's been a remarkable story. Do you know how involved or not he is in the in the search for a new top editor with Marty Barron leaving? I think he's very involved. In fact, my understanding and, uh, you know, caveat, um, this is uh, maybe a little thinly sourced, is that he's right now in Washington, D.C., um, interviewing uh, potential replacements for Marty Barron. So, yeah, my sense is that he's very involved and will have the final say. We're almost at an hour, but you, you keep, you've, you've mentioned Blue Origin a couple of times. Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't reported on, you know, Blue Origin that much. I've been an observer, you know, sort of an entertained observer um, watching the Bezos Musk. I don't know what you want to call it. Pissing match. Rivalry. Um, rivalry. rivalry. Way to put it. <laughs> it seems, you know, from your reporting, like Jeff has sort of been envious and or just, you know, trailing Elon in many ways in this space race and how they go about it. And it seems like it gets to him. Um, 
what what can you tell us about that rivalry and and sort of what it means to Bezos? Sure. I don't know if it's the personal rivalry um, or the the comparative difference in their statures that bothers him. I think the thing, my sense, the thing that does bother him is that the government pays SpaceX to basically to play, to experiment, to launch. That, you know, Jeff thought back in, in the early 2000s that he could go slow uh, fund the whole thing himself and move step by step. And, you know, it was it was going to be a multi-decade effort. And he was going to do it all himself and keep the team very small. And Elon comes around um, and basically finances SpaceX with, with some venture capital, but really by taking contracts to launch uh, satellites and, and government missions into orbital space. And you know, and and builds this huge franchise, skips suborbital altogether, uh, becomes celebrated, and builds a huge business. And you know, and and Blue Origin still very comparatively small, and it's costing Jeff a lot of money. And so I think he recognized a couple of years ago that the SpaceX model was superior; that you could, mm. you know, get paid to experiment, get paid to play. And then you know, he basically hit the acceleration button on Blue Origin, and started to compete for a lot of these contracts. Well, the problem is, you know, he set up Blue Origin with a certain DNA to move slow and deliberately um, and to do, you know, suborbital missions, uh, New Shepard, which is now selling tickets. And I feel like the change in gears has kind of sown uh, sowed a little bit of dysfunction there. They're trying to kind of do everything now. Um, it was a small team. They're now adding people really quickly, like the growing pains are there. And then the big difference is that Elon really does manage uh, SpaceX, along with Gwen Shotwell, like a really capable deputy. And Jeff, you know, my understanding is like is involved in a lot of the technical discussions and loves the weekend meetings. Um, and of course, is there with the cowboy hat and the cowboy boots for the for the launches, but is also really operates it at, at a distance. And so I think that we've seen, you know, Blue Origin has just been less effective, um, has accomplished a lot less um, hasn't met its own goals. And I, I really wonder now that he's retiring as CEO of Amazon, whether he spends more time there. Just looking at the evolution of Jeff Bezos, looking at the evolution of Amazon, sort of how they're reported on, how critics look at them. You know, something I hear from sort of defenders of Amazon and Bezos is we're judged differently than anyone else. Expectations are higher, you know, no matter what we do, whether it comes to paying our frontline workers or, you know, philanthropy for Jeff, it's not enough. I'm curious, you know, you've chronicled him and the company longer than just about anyone I know. Do you think Bezos and the, and Amazon are, are judged differently? And if so, is that fair? In terms of their philanthropic, um, well, I, I mean, so so it you know, there's his philanthropic legacy. There's totally separate from that, you know, their treatment of you know their massive frontline workforce now as the number two employer in the U.S. And there's just you know this unending you know media coverage that often looks at what they're doing wrong 
instead of what they're doing right. And so I guess it's, you know, it's a broad question, yeah. but, and if, if we want to pick it apart and just talk about, you know, Jeff himself versus the company, that's fine. You know, I think it's a really, it's a really good question. And I think, I, I think back to, do you remember in the Everything Store when I published the Amazon.love memo that Jeff had written to a senior team? And it basically had the insight that large retailers are often viewed, like Walmart, um, and large companies, large distant companies, are often viewed kind of skeptically mm. um, as extractors uh, rather than contributors to communities as an enemy for kind of sympathetic local mom and pop shops and, and mom and pop stores. And his intuition was that the one kind of guard against that is when you're seen as innovative and creating new things. But, you know, when you think about Walmart and how Walmart was treated, you know, and deservedly so, um, and now Amazon being, you know, supplanting Walmart in terms of market cap, it's so prominent in our lives and our communities. And yeah, it gets maybe outsized attention, maybe outsized skepticism. But look, I mean, they're powerful and they, I think they deserve these questions. I mean, what I try to do, you know, in, in this book is give them credit and, and benefit of the doubt for the things that the contributions they have made um, and then hold them uh, to account for the very tech company thing of of moving fast and not always considering the consequences when you move fast and tr you try to build systems to manage uh, the impact. Last question for you, Brad. It's a, it's a bit of a personal one. So you've learned so much about this company, you know, over a couple of decades now both the downsides as well as sort of the upsides of, of, you know, having Amazon in all of our lives. How do you feel about the fact that I'm assuming you make um, a good amount of your royalties on these books through the Amazon platform, right? Um, I'm curious, after learning, again, in addition to the upsides of, of Amazon and, and the invention, the downsides of the business, curious what you just, how you feel about you know, relying on them in many ways um, in in your book sales. It's such an interesting and unique position to be in, and and Jason, one that you know you you will get to enjoy soon. Um, Hope, yeah, hopefully to, in to, some to, way <laughs> to write critically um, about the company that you're then depending on. You know, yeah, not only for your sales, but depending on the direction of your sales ranking for your psychological well being is like a really precarious position to be in at the same time as you want to support uh, physical retail outlets and independent shops. It is a tremendously awkward position to be in. I ju you just have to acknowledge it. Amazon always has snafus, right? Sometimes like something doesn't show up in the search results or it, you're out of stock and suddenly you're being kicked over to a third-party seller. Or the biggest one, and it happened to me quite a bit with my last book, The Upstarts, that there's a mysterious um, quirk that substitutes the large print edition of your book for the normal hardcover. And so all your friends and family are buying your book and getting these thousand-page tomes full of large print. Oh, my. <laughs> and oh then my. you... And then you think to yourself, is this special for me? Is somebody <laughs> there, you know, tap checking a box or tapping a button on the keyboard because the company or the top guy is upset with how you handled something? And of course, that's probably, probably paranoid thinking, but it's so odd to be an author writing about Amazon, selling on Amazon, watching your Amazon ranking, and I don't have a good answer for it. Um, but maybe it's a symptom or a signal of Amazon's power that we're even in this situation. Brad, why don't you close by telling people again uh, the name of the new book and where they can find it? Sure. 
The book is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. The book is available for sale on Tuesday, May 11th from your friendly local independent bookseller, from the national chains like Barnes & Noble, and of course, from everyone's uh, favorite online juggernaut, Amazon.com. And I have to add that since Brad already has written this second book, he does not need any more sources. So all the Amazon and Walmart sources out there, you can contact me, Jason Del Rey, for my forthcoming book. Thanks, Brad. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Jason. Good talking to you. Thanks again to Brad Stone. And thanks to Joel and Jelani for producing and editing the show. Thank you, of course, to our sponsors who help us bring you interviews like this one for free. This has been Recode Media. Peter will be back on Thursday. Thanks for listening.